Hello, dear friends. Welcome to the Ten Laws podcast with East Forest. I am Forrest East. This week, I have a conversation with Eric Davis. Eric, someone that I've crossed paths with, well, I should say I knew about him for many, many years. He's a wonderful writer and author and speaker. And I only recently had a chance to actually physically cross paths with him at the Awakened Futures Conference back in San Francisco a few months back. And I thought, oh, I'd love to to dig deeper into Eric's thoughts because, boy, does he have a lot of them. And in this conversation, we get into all sorts of wonderful stuff about technology and uh, of course psychedelics and technology as the trickster and consciousness and religion and myth. And you got to strap on your thinking hats, kids, because Eric has lots and lots of great ideas and we just get right into it so uh, before we do that i just want to say thank you to uh, those of you who have reviewed this podcast please do it and you can do it more than once if you want to write a review doing it more than once helps and even just scrolling down and hitting the five stars uh, and giving it a rating makes a big big difference and of course sharing it with your friends as you do out there in the world on social medias and, and the things in the series of tubes that we call the internet, is quite helpful. Ram Dass, The Complete Record, otherwise known as Chapter 4, that's coming out August 9th, very, very soon. And I'm encouraging all of you to host a listening gathering or a listening party. All that means is you get together with yourself, your friends, your family, or your community. You host a gathering. That's all you have to do. So just do it. Just it's basically, And then you listen to the record, and we all listen to it on the same day dive into these themes at the same time and it's a way to prompt discussion and meet the community and just have a good time make a potluck out of it do do whatever you want we can give you materials if you like some discussion questions some suggestions one of those we'll give you like a talk of Ramdas expounding into these themes deeper you know different materials uh, you can write us at info at eastforest.org if you'd like those materials, but you don't have to have them. Um, but we'd love to know if you're doing this, and we'd, of course, love to see some pictures or, or videos, whatever you'd like to share of you guys getting together afterwards. And that's a great way just to help spread the message that Ram Dass is trying to put out this time and to honor and celebrate this release, release which is August 9th. And on August 9th, if you're in San Francisco, we'll be doing a live event at a place called Envelop. And Envelop is an amazing uh, immersive audio space. I think they have about 32 speakers, and you get inside all of them surrounding you. And we'll be doing a spatial remix of the record, which is going to be incredible. And then we get to perform. Uh, I'll perform live some stuff in the record. And Christopher Willits, who's part of that space, will perform too. He's going to be doing a remix of one of the tracks. So that'll be a lot of fun, and it's looking like we're going to live stream the live performance and the Q&A that we're going to have there that you can join in on on that live stream and type in your own questions. So I think the live stream will be around 9 o'clock Eastern, or I'm sorry, 9 o'clock Pacific time on August 9th. So 9 o'clock-ish. So check into Facebook, probably is where that'll be streaming from East Forest and hopefully on Ram Dass's East uh, Facebook page as well. And we'll get into that. Uh, there are other live dates coming up. I'll be in Burlington, Vermont in September. 
and the Cape Cod uh, for uh, the Love Yoga Festival coming up here too. Uh, all that's at eastforest.org and dates being added. So please check it out. I'm just getting back from my first backpacking trip of the season. Rod and I had the occasion to head up into the Idaho wilderness into the Sawtooth Range. I, you know, I've never, I've never really done any backpacking in Idaho. You know, I was an Oregon boy, Pacific Northwest guy. I had a chance with uh, Karina to go out into the Glacier National Park, did some backpacking there, and up in the Adirondacks when I was in New York City, and a few other places. I think in California a little bit. But Idaho, man, we got up into the Sawtooth Range, did a, a three-day trip, and it was like a little Switzerland. It was so amazing, so beautiful. Had a lot of wonderful moments up there, and just realizing how important it is. It's like spiritual calisthenics, you know, to get up and and do backpacking. I mean, obviously, just taking a hike is great too. Just as good, but there's something about strapping on everything you need to eat and sleep. And walking out and going to places that you can't access any other way, uh, but then just to walk there. And the, the physical effort that it takes to get there makes it obviously that much sweeter. And even if even if you didn't enjoy it, it is like doing push-ups for your soul. Now, I happened to this we had a lot of great things on this trip. It was great weather. Uh the wildflowers were just busting out all over the place. But Seeing an alpine lake emerge in front of you with little islands of little trees on them and these huge granite spiky peaks behind it and then jumping into that lake, there is not much better on this planet to just remind you that that is you too and that some things are so beautiful and they're always there, they're always up there and hopefully they're not being sullied by everything else going on in the lower elevations. But when you get up there in those higher elevations, it's rarefied air, quite literally. But I also feel there's a rarefied energy that brings something to you that is that's meaningful. So I encourage you as we're here, if you're listening to this in, in the time when it was released, it is the summertime in 2019. And that's the time when these alpines, these places are open up and we can get in there and the snow has come down late July into August, a little bit into September. So if you've never done that, maybe do a little searching around, ask your friends who are into that and say, where could I go even if it's just for a day hike and I could go see some some alpine and see some mountain ranges, if if that's nearby for you. If it's not, I feel that it'll it'll happen when it's at the right time. And if you can't do it, that's sort of why I go out and make those field recordings and, and do a lot of these things is to kind of bring it to you to bring a piece of that energy to you. I'll share some pictures too on the old socials. We'll I'll have uh we'll get that out for you. So all right. Back to the grind, back to the conversations, back to digging into the mystery. There's a great phrase that came up in this conversation with Eric that the mystery has no edge. I've been thinking a lot about that. I love it. Here it is, Eric Davis. Enjoy. Well, thank you, Eric, so much for 
joining. You've been in my orbit for a long time, probably without knowing it. <laughs> it's kind of a fun thing, actually, to do a lot of podcasts and talk to a lot of people when my book comes out, because, you know, being a writer and, uh, and you know, to some degree, being a podcaster, uh, it's kind of just like throwing messages out in the universe, and you don't always know where they where they land. And uh, I'm not like a, su a super social media person. So I'm not like immersed in feedback all the time. So it's really fun uh, meeting folks who've been following my stuff for a while. Yeah, yeah, I have been casually following your stuff for a while. As a matter of fact, you came into my circles probably 10 years ago when I first started getting into some of these counterculture subjects. It was mostly through, I think, uh, Lorenzo, the Psychedelic Salon, and things like Reality Sandwich, um, which I think you had a few articles on here and there. Oh, yeah. The yeah. So we have lots of mutual friends, and I had never had the occasion to meet you until we ever so briefly were standing next to each other at Awaken Futures Conference. But um, I was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to connect with you. So I'm glad you, glad you did come on board here. Great. Um, we have lots of cross-currents of ideas we're into, and I was just poking around your world a bit more, and there was a phrase that... I really, really like, and I wanted to ask you a bit more about it. Uh, it was talking about uh, this this phrase, technosis, which relates to one of your more popular books, Technosis, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information. And you had this great sentence it's about technosis that said, haunted by our spiritual dreams, fears, and hopes. And there was also this element of ritual in there, and ritual is something that I talk a lot about with my music but if you don't mind if we could just dive in if you could tell me a bit more about that phrase because I find that just absolutely wonderful and colorful and mysterious in itself this idea of being haunted by our spiritual dreams fears and hopes in relation to technosis can you expand on that a little bit well I mean technosis you know which came out about uh, a little over 20 years ago and I'm, I'm happy to say still seems to resonate with a lot of readers it's still in print and uh and you know, kind of set in, set in motion a lot of conversations that are continuing to go go on today. Um, but it was really driven by the the sense that you know the modern world, the 20th century, uh, likes to tell itself or liked to tell itself that it's uh, rational, secular, uh, after religion, and especially in technology, because technology is kind of like science manifested. So you get a new technological thing. It's just another proof that science is figuring out how the world works and that we mm -hmm. don't really need these old myths and dreams and fantasies to uh, make the world a better place. So you have that myth of progress, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the myth of progress is, is, is on hard, uh, you know, kind of in a, a hard up at the moment because uh, while things are changing and moving forward, uh, it's, it's increasingly clear that there's a lot of cost to be paid. Uh, perhaps extraordinary cost to be paid for the course of modern civilization. Um, but as that sort of myth began to sort of uh, dissolve, it became clear to me that that all the time, if you actually looked closely, that we never really left uh, the pre-modern world. We never really completely banished the 
world of mythology or of uh, uh, supernatural authority or of uh, religious structures, but also symbols and also our own psychologies, our own dreams, our own obsessions, our own fantasies, um, which, you know, even if you take a secular perspective, are clearly deeply involved with the reason that human beings have been you know, loosely speaking, religious for the Definitely. you know vast majority of history. So I was like, you know, that disenchantment process of of modernity, uh, you know, it happened in some ways, but in other ways, it didn't happen at all. And if you just kind of change your lens a little bit, you can suddenly see all these patterns and uh, symbols and desires and narratives that really have a kind of religious or mythological cast. And so what I was do doing in technosis is specifically looking at um, the way that technology has staged these dreams and desires. And I use the word haunted for a couple of reasons. One is that I think that there's a lot of um, people, scientists, uh, policymakers, intellectuals, uh, business leaders or whatever, who really want to believe that we're in this kind of more or less rational world, more or less, um, you know, understandable world where, where the, the, these, these dominant myths of, of the past are, are largely dispensed with, or at least privatized into individual minds or individual, um, you know, uh, religious practice, but it's not really a, a social fact anymore. But I don't think that's true. And so the the way in which those those currents still dominate or still shape us is more like a haunting, like the way that something we thought was lost is actually not lost, or it, the 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 way in which it, it has been repressed from public life actually returns as kind of a return of the repressed through our dreams, through our fantasies, through our intensity. So the mm. the very the very enthusiasm that so many of us had around let's say digital technology from the from the 19 late 1980s onward you know the sense of something new the sense of something revolutionary the sense that the world was going to be different whether it was going to be business or it was going to be uh, education or entertainment or spirituality even that 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 enormous sense of possibility was a kind of haunting a haunting by religious and apocalyptic patterns that very clearly go back through culture, but aren't recognized as that, at least by most people. So it, it's, a, and so it's a haunting in that sense. We think we're, we're done with something, but it's not done with us. But, there, but also, I think there was a note on the spectral, you know, that the, the sense of the ghosty, because a lot of these images and symbols and ideas come in sort of as a kind of uh, technological specters. You have to look into popular culture. You have to look into the symbols that people are using. You have to look into the dreams people are having in order to find these these traces of uh, older ways of of being and thinking as they continue to influence um, our contemporary moment. And I think these days it's it's even more obvious. You know, it, it, it like uh, my thesis is even clearer now because as well, to put it simply, as consensus reality kind of melts down and we are in this multiple world of multiple realities and multiple truths, it's easier to see how dominant uh, in some ways religion and or mythology and or the occult still are. So for just for an example, you know, not only is it obvious that um, 
conservative Christianity still has a, a huge role to play in contemporary America, not just in terms of voting, uh, but also in terms of, of a whole mind frame of spiritual warfare, or you can't analyze the politics of Israel today without recognizing apocalyptic fantasies and um, ideas inside the American, uh, right, you know, right-wing Christianity. But another example is just the spread of, um, of conspiracy theory, because even if some conspiracy theories are largely technological or political, you know, they're about uh, global elites who are using technologies to control us or have advanced technologies or the military who has advanced, you know, UFO-related technologies and, and things like that, even if that's dominantly sort of a secular picture, it just takes one or two steps and you're inside mythology, you're inside mysticism, you're inside esotericism. Mind control is another version of uh, of, of magical spells in a, in a lot of ways. And indeed, it's very clear if you go down rabbit holes of conspiracy theory, you might start out on secular ground, looking at like global elites and the board, you know, who what families are on what boardrooms or what advanced technologies are involved in satellite systems or chemtrails or something. But if you follow the material, if you watch the YouTube videos, if you go online, if you sort of check out, it's very soon that we're talking about you know, different races of aliens, or we're talking about <laughs> Illuminati mind control. And so there's a, a, a fuzzing of secular accounts and esoteric or, or occult-tinged uh, accounts in conspiracy theory. So in some ways, can, the whole attraction of conspiracy theory is another trace of these older ways of thinking and being where there are hidden forces, malefic forces, uh, you can't trust your own mind. Uh, there's good, you know, there's good and evil. It's on a cosmic level. There's a, a kind of cosmic battle being played out inside this, uh, you know, across the surface of ordinary life. All of these are essentially kind of religious or spiritual motifs that continue to drive us. Wow. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And one of the ideas you said in there, um, I, I, I keep thinking about like the vestiges of ritual and myth that we make can never escape, that they're sort of always part of our life, but perhaps we're not as awake to them. And we continue to, uh, you know, use ritual in our lives, but in a really blind way. I mean, like, what are ways do you think we can sort of kind of bring this back into our consciousness in a, in a more conscious way so that it's not just sort of this thing that's that so maybe so it's less fuzzy it's more of a tool because i mean as i'm sure you're well aware the commodification of some of this stuff like let's just say the spiritual world in general or the wellness world uh, tries to put its hand into that pot of myth whether rightly or wrongly, and does so in a way that then starts to just kind of muddy the waters. But I feel like the intent is is sort of there's a there's a proper intent there of a desire to kind of connect with that past, you know, and connect with something something that is sort of an echo that's chasing us. Yeah, I, I think that's true, and I think that's that's <clears throat> that's true even for um, secular people. Like, there's two ways of telling that story. One is to say, well, you know, there are these uh, religious or spiritual, there's no, there's no great word for it. There's this sort of need for a deeper 
uh, uh, a deeper engagement with the, the patterns of reality, the patterns of consciousness, the patterns of the cosmos. And we've sort of lost that as modern people. And so what we need to do is recover it. But I think there's another argument that is in a way more interesting is that even if you believe uh, for good reasons that um, that there's you know a lot of problems with with uh, religious thinking, uh, there's that there's a really good reason to continue to reinvest in in rationality and reason if you think that we can explain a lot of these things through anthropology or through psychology or evolutionary uh-huh. psychology. Even if that's the case, I think we have to recognize that the vast majority of us, and possibly all of us, on some level or another, nonetheless continue to need, or even if we're not acknowledging it, actually perform rituals, uh, supernatural beliefs, uh, magical thinking. Um, And that's part of the trick, is that even if we, we have freed ourselves from the the kind of dominant dogmatic claims of religion that these patterns continue because they're just part of us even from a, even from a secular perspective they're part of our evolutionary wiring we are wired to be religious on some level and so yeah. even as we wake up or become free thinkers and question and critique these older ways of being we still end up reproducing it over and over again and so we have to be more realistic about the fact that all of us on some level are, are mythic religious beings that are wired for ritual, wired for magical thinking. And if we try to believe, if we pretend to believe that we can banish it from our lives entirely, I think we're actually setting us up, ourselves up for a worse fall. So there's a reason for all of us to become more aware of how that is something that we have to take responsibility for. And the wellness industry is taking advantage of some of that by saying, oh, it's good for you. So you can, if you have, uh, it, you know, if you want to achieve more in life, if you have these rational or reasonable goals about getting better, getting, uh, you know, more intelligent, more balanced, more physical energy, uh, more emotionally uh, savvy, all of these like goods can be provided to you through things that are also kind of like religion and mythology, you know, or ritual, going to do yoga, doing whatever. So in a way, there's a little bit of a kind of almost an exploitation of this part of ourselves that continues to demand attention or some kind of practice that we all have rituals, even if we think we're, we're, we're outside of rituals, we have rituals around our food, we have rituals around technology, we have rituals yeah. around people. And so in a way, I think what you're what you're saying is that in a way, we have to be more aware of that more intentional about the rituals and myths that we bring into our to our lives. Yeah, like just less asleep. I mean, why, why do you think that is that uh, aside from the biological explanation that we're sort of hardwired to fall back into ritual and mystical thinking or religion? Well, I mean, I, in, in this case, uh, I, I actually would just pull an evolutionary psychology card. I just think that we've been doing this for so long that it's one of the ways we, we learn to relate to the world or, and to other people. You know, and a lot of it has to do also with, with other people, with cultural identification, with resonance. So a ritual 
um, you know, even a, a secular ritual like a barbecue or a you know rock and roll jam, uh, that though that kind of uh, those kinds of actions where we sort of know what we're doing with our bodies, we're 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 moving through certain uh, uh, emotional stages that are sort of prepared in advance or scripted in advance. Well, what that lets us do is to resonate with each other to form. Uh, kinds of collectivity that are very hard to do if we're just sitting there as isolated individuals trying to do something completely new or trying to just have a conversation that we need these forms of collectivity. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons, you know, dance music is so popular, you know, it, it, is that it when you go on the dance floor, you kind of know the script, you know what you're allowed to feel, you know how far you can go. Uh, and you're doing it with all these other people. And so suddenly you have a sense of connection, a kind of communitas is a, is a sociological term for, for this sort of feeling of interweaving that we have with other people. And traditionally, you know, if you're in a, you know, in an in a indigenous culture, that's very homogenous, everybody has this more or less the same cosmology and orientation. There's tons of these rituals that allow the group to come together and to feel connected. And you know, we still have that desire today, but we do it largely in a secular form, like going to, you know, dance music concerts or going to sporting events. You know, the the roaring crowd right. at a sporting event is a very ecstatic collective kind of experience. So I think we already are acknowledged the way in which we still uh, need these connections, but they tend to not be as conscious. And so they, they can be sort of manipulated in different ways that that might not be if we were more aware of what we're and more just being making more decisions about where we put those energies. Yeah. I mean, has there been a way for you personally in your life where I don't know, ritual or myth kind of broke through the veil for you, whether through psychedelics or just through your own experience where it's sort of, I mean, sometimes I think that these things are sort of symptoms in a way of is the mystery itself, uh, the things that are ineffable, you know, the oneness that can't be described. And for me, it, I find solace in that. And I suppose from a biological perspective, it could be explained that it's like, yeah, you know, you're looking for meaning and patterns and ways to explain that which my brain can't understand, you know, the things that are beyond the boundary condi conditions of my consciousness. But there's also a certain like intuitive feeling that like, especially from certain psychedelic experiences that some of these things feel true to me. They ring true, but they're like they're past where I can describe them their past where I can uh, know them or put my finger on them. And in a way, ritual and myth and music and art and all these things are a way of sort of honoring the mystery itself or dancing around it. And I'm curious for you personally in your life, like if you've had a kind of a personal connection to that, or if it's more a bit agnostic or even atheist or. Um, no, I think the key to you. The key term you have there is 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 mystery. You know, I, I'm 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 good with that term. You know, it's a it's a term that comes up in a funny way in discussions in like consciousness studies, where there are those people who believe that we can explain consciousness as a biological emergent property or some, you know, there's a variety of different claims of how to explain consciousness. And then there's a whole bunch of other people, even very scientific, rational, philosophical people, not, not mystics, not 
woo-woo people at all who say, no, man, we can't, we're not, we're not even close. We can't even right. come close to explaining what consciousness is. And the first group, you know, the Daniel Dennett's, they have a term for those other people, which is the Mysterians. And they're like, oh, <laughs> my, Mysterians are the ones who hold the consciousness is essentially a mystery. And there's this kind of snarky, uh, resentful uh, mockery of people who acknowledge the mystery in existence. And I think it's actually a very, you know, one of these ways that you can boil down people's basic relationship to the world, even if they have very different views, there are some of these core patterns. And I think one core pattern is those of us, whether we are new age spiritualists or hard headed, uh, you know, science minded people, but for those of us who are comfortable or recognize the fundamental mystery, whether it's the mystery of why we're here at all, whether it's the mystery of consciousness, whether it's the sense that there's something fundamentally unknowable in reality, and we have to accept that or come to terms with it or wrestle with it or dance with it or whatever that metaphor is. And then there's those people who really kind of believe, which to my mind seems kooky, but really kind of believe that it's all explainable, that it, that any kind of mystery is just the veil of our own current ignorance. And maybe even if we can't figure it out because our, we're, we're wired a certain way, that machines will be able to figure it out, that, that you know, the, the mm. AIs of the future will actually be able to crack it all. Wow. And, and I think that's, a, that's an orientation that drives not, a, not all scientists, but a lot of scientists and a lot of technologists and a lot of sort of uh, uh, kind of cynical people, too. It's like, ah, oh, no, it's all, we'll just, we just don't know yet. We'll figure it out. Da, 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 da. And I think it's, you know, really important to acknowledge mystery, acknowledge that you don't know the edges of the mystery, that as soon as you say the mystery is definitely this, you're not really acknowledging the mystery. That's part of the mystery is that mm, there might beautiful. be something that we don't know. And we do figure it out kind of more or less, you know, maybe we don't know the whole thing, but it's still just embedded in another enigma, another conundrum. I mean, we're still back at like what happens at the beginning of the universe or, you know, what what is the origins of consciousness? Is it is it a fundamental thing in, in, in the cosmos? Is it an emergent property? We may never answer that question. And that's OK. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try. But it also means, to my mind, that we should all recognize that we have a relationship to the mystery. And that relationship is something that we should acknowledge. We might even cultivate. We might, uh, you know, turn it into a kind of spiritual path, or we might use it as a as a kind of reason for going even into a traditional religion. Like some people, I think, t you know, fully, uh, you know, embrace like a religious view, partly because the, on, at a deep level they just acknowledge that they don't know what it's mm. ultimately all about, and so it might make as much sense as anything to, to put it through, you know, a Christian frame or a Sufi frame or something. And that's, that's okay. You know, and I'm, I'm enough of a pluralist that I also believe that that's okay. Uh, for me, it has been something that's more existential, uh, more, but still, you know, involving spiritual practice, driving a constant curiosity about forms of religion and forms of ritual, uh, and, you know, forms of uh, altered states of consciousness? Is there any light that is shed on the mystery through psychedelics or through meditation, uh, through ecstatic dance, through 
uh, you know, art that deals with these kinds of uh, topics. So, you know, it's, it's very much a part of my uh, you know, personal life as well as my work. It's just that I, I've kind of decided, at least till now, and with some important exceptions, to mostly write from a kind of scholarly point of view or a critical point of view, just because there's not that many people who do that. Um, there's a mm. lot of people who write from a more kind of personal view, a more like, you know, they're a spiritual teacher or they're embracing these speculative possibilities. And I prefer to stay a little bit more on a kind of um, critical edge, not because I think it's stupid to go much farther, but because it's just an interesting place to be and to kind of affirm. So that's why when you asked me before about why we have these, these deep um, kind of patterns in us, I, I'm okay with turning to evolutionary psychology. I think evolutionary psychology by no means exhausts uh, the complexity of being human or the, the nature of consciousness by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, in some ways, it can be really kind of an irritating, uh, pe uh, pedantic uh, kind of set of answers to problems. Like you have these, you know, big question about what is what could ritual mean to our lives? And they offer some kind of you know, psychologized, like mm -hmm. reasoning based on some kind of evolutionary selection principle. And there, there, there are a lot of just so stories. That's one of the criticisms of evolutionary psychology. It's like a, a story told in reverse, so that you can get to some explanation that takes <laughs> it out of some more elevated framework and makes it just like another way that, you know, these you know, robot meat machines struggle to survive. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's a very benighted view, but I still think it's important to one, pay attention to it, two, take on those arguments that are, that are, that seem interesting or valid, and even like work with them and be willing to sort of acknowledge that that's part of the, that's part of the story. Uh, now are those kinds of stories rather than just like a lot of people, I think, who have more interest in, religion or spirituality or, or, you know, who, who really believe that consciousness is much more than we're acknowledging it to be in a secular framework, that they tend to just reject all that stuff. They just, they can tell that it's, it's, you know, reductive from a mile away, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. I think it's more interesting to kind of occupy a middle ground, uh, where yeah. you acknowledge, um, and, you know, keep paying attention to this stuff, even if your intuition and your, 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 even your just your basic sense of reality uh, points you to a, a larger picture. Yeah, it, it's all worthwhile. Sometimes uh, the dogma of science, it's one of those, the map becomes the territory type situation. Just like, well, there's, there's, that's not everything, but it's absolutely, that's sort of a description of, of reality that's very true and useful to us. Um, let me switch gears a bit to technology in general, because it's something that I think about a lot and talk about a lot. And I often think about you know, the different, uh, was it, was it, uh, was it Leary or was it, uh, who was the one sort of like the octaves of our history from like the stone age to fire, to agriculture, to, uh, you know, the speeding up sort of, of our, I mean, talked about by, uh, Terrence McKenna as well, as we sort of, this, uh, I think a lot of, I mean, that's, there's, I mean, there's different versions curve. of that story, uh, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, one of the people I write about in my, in my new book, high weirdness, Robert Anton Wilson, uh, yes. he very much talked about, about that. Yes. And he was, you know, a, a, a crony of Leary's. So I think they both shared a sense 
which in this i think in the 1970s and 80s when they were you know kind of doing a lot of their futuristic work uh was could be seen in a somewhat more utopian light than we can these yeah. today but that you know they just recognize that there's just these shorter and shorter periods of time where things are accelerating that there is mm-hmm. something fundamentally uh accelerational that's not really a word uh, <laughs> accelerationist yeah. <laughs> about but i don't want to take an accelerationist <laughs> position philosophically but there is something accelerating about about human history or at least about technology or or intelligence and technology or whatever you want to call it um i think we can that can that can um fool us sometimes too is that we see one area of the world that's increasing in a, in a kind of exponential way and so then we go oh well the whole thing is increasing that way like moore's laws like that or we can hang the whole history of the world or the whole future history of the world on something like moore's law um i think we can get we can get confused uh by doing that and some of these earlier characters uh i think did get confused but nonetheless overall you know, Terrence is right. You know, we're in some kind of accelerating process. It's hard to look ahead and not see it sort of at some point break off or hit a singularity or hit a bifurcation point or a whole bunch of bifurcation points. You know, it's really hard to just sort of believe that it kind of continuously uh, increases in all of these different domains. So it, it, it there is a sort of... Uh, kind of apocalyptic dynamic at least in the in the development of civilization the development of technology the development in media the development in you know artificial intelligence that all of these things are there's a ramp up and that part of what we're we're feeling right now i think is is the ramp up and the way that it's not like everything's ramping up it's like a lot of problems are just getting worse in a plain old mundane what do we do with the trash kind of way it's not like our ability to manage <laughs> <Literally>. trash <laughs> is ramping up it's not it's like pla- it's, it's the opposite the plastics are everywhere the plastics are in your gut the plastics are in the deep vents of the sea the plastics are everywhere and while they're not necessarily the worst thing in the world they're not you know you know, nitroglycerin or, or toxic, you know, bacteria or something there. It's also not so good. So that is is what's ramping up. There is just the extent of plastic in its distribution through the environment and through our bodies and through all of our water systems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's like, that's not exactly a, 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 you know, a, a ramping up. That's just kind of an intensification. So there's this tension between and one of the ways that technology tricks us, and there are many, is that by, quote unquote, improving, which is a story that is as much about product design and marketing and corporations and consumerism as it is about actual technical efficiency or power, but it's that too. But by constantly improving, technology then becomes an image of the myth of progress that in many other domains of reality is harder and harder, in fact, impossible to sustain. And we've watched that over the last 30 years. You know, I think in the in the 1980s, you might have actually, but even in the 1990s, when things were ramping up in the first first dot-com bubble and people sure. were saying like, we're entering a, a time of, of total abundance and the rules of economy is going to change. And there was this, again, 
ultimately religious or utopian or magical thinking that was latched onto the fact that the technologies themselves were improving really, dra really dramatically and entering into our, our lives. And then now where we're at is that you still see these these companies that we are completely embedded within, we have no, it's so hard to escape or even imagine escape from the kind of interlocking tendrils of credit cards and, and information companies and online companies and television and, you know, uh, uh, surveillance and all this kind of these databases and we're leaving trumped crumbs of our data everywhere. You know, it's very hard to be, ver to be utopian or even believe this is any kind of progress. And yet the new widget, it, we're constantly being sold the new widget. And it's not just because they're trying to sell it to us. It's also because in a way of the, the civilization is panicking and realizing that there's really no progress. I mean, there's things are changing and getting more intense, but it's not like thumbs up. And so it's like, let's hold on to any little myth we can of like things getting better because it doesn't really look like that anymore, at least from most perspectives. So it's a very interesting thing about, about technology, the way that it paradoxically came to sort of bear the burden of our hopes that the, the that we could engineer a better future. Uh, and, and it continues to do that, even though we all know from our personal lives that we get an upgrade and it causes other kinds of problems and it no longer works with this other software and we have to go back and fix that. And then that other thing isn't working anymore. And then, oh yeah, they, by the way, they were taking your data all this time. And so now I have to worry about, you know, it just complexifies. It's full of noise. It's full of cracks. It's full of shitty software. You know, it, it's not a progress situation in any kind of general sense. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a very funny place that we still kind of fall into a, cert, a sort of idea of progress uh, that I think is no longer really manifested in our in our day to day techno structure. Yeah, I love this idea of technology as the trickster, as you were saying. Um, you know, I see if you see the like, information age as say maybe the next octave jump after the, I don't know the nuclear age in this concrescence of history. Uh, I kind of see the iPhone itself as another jump in how it changed the world in the last ten years and changed our lives. And I, I, I like to think about what's next, not because I'm like anticipating that with enthusiasm, but more I'm just curious. And recently, did you see this? I saw this presentation by Elon Musk about the Neuralink, this company he's, uh, he's with. It, it's a little tiny, it's less than the size of a hair, like a, a tenth of a hair. And it, they put all these little electrodes in your brain, essentially like turning your you know, giving a mainframe feed right into your like brain, I suppose of of what a phone does. I've, did you see anything? Did you see this? Yeah, yeah. Life? I mean, I've, I've I'm uh, uh, I've been you know tracking some of that stuff for quite a while. I mean, people have been thinking and talking about that for for a bit, but because it's Musk, you know, it makes the big the big news. Um, but yeah. yeah, that seems to be part of the future. And you know, again, even if it's just. Uh, the military pushing that, you know, something like that, if it can be done, will be done because, you know, you, you, you want a soldier to have direct data downloads into, into its brain. Mm -hmm. And wow. I think that's a, you know, that's, a, that's one place to look for the sort of, you know, next turn. I, I think, uh, you know, I would like to believe that there would be a great deal of resistance among your average population to, 
this kind of technology short of, you know, dealing with stroke victims or, or problems with brain damage, uh, simply because it's so obvious that all the the whole internet of things that we're building, of which in some sense this is a part, the brain is another thing that becomes part of the internet, uh, that that is so, there's so many security problems with that. There's, it's so open to hackability oh, yeah. and everything is so hacked now that the idea of putting a, a, an implant into your brain, like as a thing in itself, even though it freaks me out a little bit, you know, it's still also kind of fascinating. I mean, I've, I've read enough science fiction to go like, wow, what would that be like? What if I could have like, um, you know, direct connection to, you know, the encyclopedia or this immense memory bank so I could actually start to remember all these things that I'm forgetting now that, you know, I'm in my <laughs> 50s and I can't remember that anymore. And like, I'd love to be able to just pull that out. So if I have a little chip that's storing that on that, like that idea in itself is is fine it's like the same idea about a fitbit like uh, great the fitbit's tracking my walking it's giving me some information it's giving me readings about my body no problem but my problem is that who owns that data who can cipher that data who can hack that data who can weaponize that data and there's so many parties and it's so clear that whatever moral systems maybe once kind of held back uh, you know the, the the nefarious aspirations of of humanity uh, are 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 dwindling and crumbling fast so the idea that you would trust in some kind of neural link structure that's involved that's connected to the internet or connected to some corporate database just blows my mind but i'm but i can't believe that people put alexa in their homes i mean even though right. i know they can track me i know if they really want to get me they can use my cell phone i have a cell phone blah 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 like i know it's partly symbolic but at the same time it just seems like such a strange thing to do to trust in that way. Uh, and and I was, you know, guilty of it. I mean, in the 90s, we were very trusting, we thought we really felt like this new connection, this new digitally supported in, in, interweaving of, of minds and ideas and, and information, you know, was worthy of trust, because it was going to be part of what, uh, what evolved us. But getting back to what the next link is, you know, it's funny thing about the iPhone is that we can talk about the iPhone in terms of the developed world, and how much has that changed the developed world? But we're just beginning to like have like radical distribution of of simple, simpler uh, cellular phones, but with some basic data, you know, connection in them throughout the world. So like the 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 developing world is is coming online in this massive way that is going to is really going to change a lot of things as well. Um, so we're, we're still like, that's one of the things about looking at these developments is they're also unevenly distributed. And some of the dynamics in history happen when they, when they really massify, you know, when, when people get television, you know, in, in the jungle or whatever, whatever, by the time we're already like plugging into virtual reality. So there, there, it's unevenly distributed, but those things can have as much import, uh, as much influence on what's happening as the the cutting edge, the the bleeding edge uh, in the developed world. Yeah, it's uneven, but at the same time, I mean, the way information can spread around the planet now is totally insane. I mean, I have a a friend who's like working on a, a Netflix project, like a show, and was describing to me how when they launch it, they you know they literally just hit go on it, and it reaches something like. I don't know. It's like a hundred million people or something all at once in different languages all around the world. And they instantly can start tracking its effectiveness and, 
you know, how, how many seconds people watch here and there and just sort of the distribution methods that we have now are just bananas. Uh, or just the way like news can, can spread around the world and how fast. And it makes me think about uh, things like when I look at maps of mycelial networks and, and psilocybin and you look at like people's representations of a map of the internet or a map of like an, your brain and neurons and how they all have this sort of similar look and shape and do, do you believe that there's there's sort of uh sort of like the marshall McLuhan idea that we're the sex organ of the machines that we're sort of creating some kind of uh, hyper consciousness where like each human is like a cell in that being and there's something larger that's taking shape whether that's gaia becoming this techno form or whether it's like the reverse echo of, of some future event and singularity or, or none of the above. It's just sort of the happenstance of all these series of fiber optic tubes we've put all over the earth. Yeah. I mean, I think it's both to tell you the truth. And, and my instinct when confronted with those possibilities, and this is just the way that I kind of hand handle them is to think about it historically to go, this isn't the first time anybody thought about this kind of idea, even if we use different language, more cybernetic language, or increasingly maybe more organic language. I mean, I think that's a really interesting, just to note already that, uh, that you know, even if we can talk about networks and uh, network consciousness and networks as sort of a, a basis of some kind of higher mind, the fact that we would also look towards mycelial networks as an example of this already represents a shift from a purely kind of modern technology mind frame. Um, but the, all of these stories are also, again, embedded in, in the religious imagination. You know, there was the idea, the Platonic idea of the spiritus mundi, that the, that the planet, the world had its own spirit, its own kind of consciousness. So we have a lot of stories already about higher forms of consciousness, whether they're advanced beings or whether they're uh, environments, localities, or indeed whole planets. You know, planets have a, a sort of awareness in, inside an astrological idea or inside science fictional ideas. So we have like this whole sort of archive of models and myths and images of what these kind of higher forms of consciousness would be. So then you bring us to the, the present and the fact that we're actually building these networks. And so inevitably, these, the, these kinds of ideas and, and myths not only get stirred up, but they become part of our story of what is happening, at least, at least some of us. Um, one thing to note, though, is that there's always, there's always a dark side, you know, like you can look at um, the idea that the whole globe uh, wakes up or the whole globe becomes a kind of one conscious entity, but that can also be a demiurge or an archon or uh, a control system, uh, a, a satanic a new world order. You know, it's the new world order it, it, it is in a way like another image of a kind of networked globe that is all, you know, uh, interwoven and, um, you know, uh, associated with a certain kind of consciousness. So there's, you know, it's, it's, it's you never get a, a clear vision. And so when I meet people who are like, oh, yeah, it's this, you're like, okay, great, that's one of them, which feels to me like we're more in a position of, of radical multiplicity, and we're wondering how to navigate it. We're wondering if is it, is it even still worthwhile to kind of invoke 
these more positive accounts of a sort of global consciousness uh, when a lot of the forces that are driving us to interlink and interconnect are are clearly, clearly have different kinds of agendas. So are they just ultimately in the service of this larger evolution through through planetary history? You know, maybe in the in the very long run. Uh, I don't. I, I'm not sure why one would have one particular belief about that uh, versus another one. But clearly, we're de- we're dealing with forms of collectivity that have logics and patterns that are that go beyond individual human beings. Yeah, like it doesn't seem like any one group or obviously individual could be in charge. It's just it's too complex, you know. Like no one's who's this idea that there's, I don't know, folks steering the ship. I mean, there's people influencing the ship, but I just I, I, I tend to feel that there's there's really no one in charge. Yeah, that tends to be my my gut feeling uh, as well. And one of the interesting things about like, oh, is the internet, you know, a, a kind of collective form of intelligence that's waking up? It might already be woken up. We might not know. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. as as little as little <laughs> nodes, as you know, if we're single neurons in this brain, single neurons don't understand that the brain is thinking about you know taking a trip to might you know to to malta next week or something you know it's just doing its own little squirting and so you know that all that (laughs) stuff could also already be the case you know it it might be that what you know when people experience you know experience a higher mind and in psychedelic experiences or meditation or whatever that they're tuning into these minds they've just been around for a long time maybe the the mycelial consciousness is just you know fully engaged all the time we just don't really know how to tap into it and the uh, it'll be, it would be interesting to think about how they feel about the, the encroaching kind of, uh, digital, uh, you know, technological mind. I love this idea that someone posting on social media is a human being squirting. I think (laughs) 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 that's perfect. Um, well, you know, I would like to touch a little bit on, on psychedelics. Um, I, I read an article you were writing about something that I was recently getting into. Um, as you know, obviously, psychedelics are coming a bit more into the mainstream quite a bit, especially with recently with uh, some actions for decriminalization of psilocybin. And I love that you wrote an article. I, I don't remember the title of it, but it's sort of about how this is coming into capitalism and commercialization and things like compass pathways and maps and usona um this is a complicated subject because it's uh it's sort of like there's an inevitability to it and it gets very murky as it starts to merge into the mainstream which is sort of what some people have always wanted it to be certainly not illegal for people to be put in jail for exploring their own consciousness. But it, I think there's a lot of people who feel that it's a really important tool, you know, for this crisis that we're kind of in as a civilization. Yet it's, it's now becoming merged with the mainstream, which could be potentially problematic. And, um, I don't know. I just would love to leave it at that and see what comes up for you because either intuitively and personally, but also intellectually what you think is happening and how we wade through this. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's another one of those uh, two minds situations um, where, you know, we're, we're on a, we're on a knife edge or there's a Scylla and Charybdis that we have to navigate in between. Um, and uh, 
I think it's really just important to continue to to, to not let the hype win on on, on any side, you know. Now, and, and that's um, in a way always mm. the the battle. And what I mean by that is that you know, if you look at the maps perspective, they have hype going. They have this idea that these are wonder drugs that can radically transform. Um, human psychology. I think there's some reason to, to be optimistic about some of that, but I think it's very clear that this is another kind of hype wave. That if you go back and and look at the history of of uh, psychiatric medicine and psychiatric techniques, you'll find the same thing over and over again. So there's always been problems with with uh, human psychology. There's always been um, you know uh, you know mental illness. And so you have something new that comes along, and it seems to really have some real power real efficacy whether it's electroshock therapy or you know or you know early forms of uh, like thorazine or um lobotomies like when these things first hit they showed tremendous results and then later on it's like ah, actually sort of there's a lot of problems doesn't really solve the problem and we so we have to be skeptical about some of these radical claims, even if our personal feelings are that these things are important and valuable and should be able to be used without the threat of jail. Those aren't the same thing. So that's, there's like a MAPS agenda, which is not looking at the dark side, at the dark side of psychedelics, at freaking out, at what happens when these things enter into corporate structures. And then you have even more corporate actors like Compass Pathways who are just going for it you know, full on, and they're using all of this new psychedelic renaissance, you know, quasi-utopian rhetoric. And there's all these young people who are involved in it who are like, this is it. This is the new transformative force. It's going to give us the, the clues to be able to navigate the future. And I'm like, okay, but when, you're, when your own utopian view is so, uh, so easily, it, it, it so clearly is supporting these other kinds of agendas, you should be a little bit more careful about it. At the same time, I think it's, we got to be, you know, uh, critical of, of, uh, of, you know, all, all of the resistance to these things, you know, the idea that we got to put this back in the box or whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's a situation where we have to be, you know, really aware of all the, uh, of all the different dimensions of, uh, of the problem. And, you know, in a way, that's why, to me, de decriminalization is the, is, the, is the most interesting model, or at least forms of uh, legalization that are very insistent at preventing or resisting the kind of corporate and or bureaucratical takeover. So a pure de decriminalization model says nothing about legalization. It says nothing about regulation. So you're not in creating a new bureaucratic body to administer psilocybin in Denver or in Oakland. Instead, you're just issuing an order to the police not to pursue these cases or in, in the, you know, uh, to, in the district attorneys. You just don't, this is not on the table anymore. But all the other stuff doesn't, is, doesn't get kicked in. That causes other kinds of problems because then there's no way you know, what happens to all if there's all these underground therapists who start doing, you know, uh, doing rituals, doing ceremonies, doing healing situations, and some of them are unethical, some of them are abusive, some of them are megalomaniac, 
you know, assholes. And that that's going to be there, too. And if you if it's if you have some kind of system of regulation, you can kind of control those. But once you have a system of regulation, then you have different uh, uh uh, features of society that want to start to control it. So, for example, once you have regulation over psychoactives, then it's usually the therapist, the psychologist, the psychiatrist, the medical industry that steps in as saying, well, we're the ones who get to say who gets to administer it, under what conditions they get to administer it. And if you're coming from the underground, if you're coming from a faith in the in the ability of individuals to develop their own relationships with these compounds that's very troubling and it's even more troubling when that therapeutic regimen re, regimen gets sort of pig, piggybacked or is, is, is by uh by corporations because they come in and they say, oh, great, you're creating a regulatory situation where we can administer a psilocybin to people who have gone, who have gone to the right uh, you know, psychiatrists or, or therapists in the society. Well, here we're going to create a whole patented system of administering a certain formulation that's going to make enough money for us and make enough money for them and, and the insurance companies get involved and suddenly the whole thing is completely distorted and completely and increasingly out of the hands of people who can't afford to enter into that game. I mean, the, the amount of money that people are talking about charging for compass pathway yeah. psilocybin sessions or MDMA sessions or even ketamine sessions, when ketamine is like almost free as a molecule, but they have to create a structure that enables everybody to get paid. And at the end of the day, it's, you know, uh, thousands of dollars. So that's clearly, in some sense, utterly corrupt. And yet, if you don't have a regulatory system, if you if it, if it's just decriminalization, then then there's more, you know more attention to it more. There's more, way more demand for this now. There's all these straights and non psychoactive people who are looking to these things because they have real issues because they're curious because it's all a mode because they have meant you know frustrating issues with mental illness for good reasons. But who's going to serve them and who's going to modulate that 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 market and the underground can't do it anymore i mean you know the the underground for whatever excesses there were you know with individuals or bad material or exploitation or violence you know overall the, the psychedelic underground not the not the drug Econ the black market drug economy yeah. in general but just the psychedelic was was you know relatively uh self-policing in a way you know it was it's it was you know there were problems, yes, and I, and I, but I think the problems are going to increase dramatically as the interest increases. So it's kind of a rock and a hard place at this point. You know, um, uh, you know, I. It's, so all I can really do is to continue to reflect on the things that people aren't paying attention to. I'm I'm very interested in the uh, in the statewide um, measure that's coming up in in Oregon around psilocybin. Uh, because while it, it does install a regulatory regime and it does take away the right of individuals to grow their own, you know, to grow their own mushrooms and take them on their on their own, it does also have a lot of mechanisms to kind of prevent um, the kind of takeover that I was just describing in terms of controlling uh, the amount of material that any producer can make, so thereby keeping the the, the corporate scale under control and also creating a way for individuals who aren't therapy, who don't, don't have a therapist license or psychiatric licenses to, to get their own licenses to be sitters. So there's a way for people who are not 
otherwise licensed to get licenses. So I think there's things that are, that, you know, it's, it's a very involving situation. And I don't think there's one right way. And I think we're going to have to experiment and see what happens. I mean, what's going to happen in, in Oakland now? I mean, it's not just psilocybin, it's ayahuasca, it's ibogaine. I mean, those are those are intense things. So are we going to see an uptick in, in problems? Are we going to see uh, also at the same time, this rich, you know, sort of gray market, world of of ritual group work of of new psychological modalities working with people collectively rather than the the one-on-one uh, model of, of traditional therapy which i think has real limitations to it for a lot of reasons you know if we want some kind of collective uh response out of the psychedelic renaissance if we don't just want it to be another form of neoliberal therapy that treats the individual uh, for their problems to get them back you know, working and happy in their lives, if we're going to actually see this stuff help to spawn different models of how we might live collectively and how, how we might change some of the fundamental structures to society or be able to support each other as things start to devolve, which is another possibility, then we need to be able to ha- understand how to do it collectively, you know, how, how to do it in, in groups, in ritual, in, in a ceremonial context, but maybe with different stories, different ceremonies, different ways of distributing power. So, I mean, we're really in this. I mean, it's fascinating. Um, it's troubling. Uh, it's exhilarating. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in seeing how it evolves and trying to keep the, the, the conversation open so that we're, we're paying attention to all the dimensions of it. And again, not succumbing to the usual hype. You know, and in this sense, I'm really, really tired of of the rhetoric that comes out of maps. Um, I'm really, I think it's really, I don't say unethical, but it's just, it's not paying attention to the complexity of the situation right now. And it gives people easy answers and and an easy sort of model of like, here's the good guys and we give them all the money and then they make this regime and then everything's going to be happier and we're going to be able to deal with all these PTSD and all these problems. And they're not, they're just not paying attention to the ways in which those very things can become weaponized that they also ignore individual rights, my right to be able to, you know, have, have a relationship with these things outside of a regulatory regime, which I'm very uh, I'm very insistent on as, as as much as I can, even as I recognize that it raises problems. So you know, it's a mess out there, but it's a it's kind of a <laughs> glorious mess at this point. Yeah, there's definitely a momentum and a wave, both culturally and energetically. So things are things are happening for sure on that front. And uh, it's it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, like whether it's with psychedelics or some of your views on technology, your work and your thinking is cautious, but it's optimistic. I mean, you seem to be kind of building bridges and treading a, an edge as you spoke about before. I mean, I, I'm hearing you, uh, not wanting to like fall fully into any one camp. Is that yeah, that, that's, that's just a, that's just a temperamental way. It's a way I'm organized. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a pessimism it's of the intellect, optimism of the will kind of, kind of mode. Like I think that, that, that we need to ask critical questions in spirituality, in, you know, psychedelics, in, uh, you know, our cultural identifications and what we do. I think that's, that spirit is really important. But when you do that, then one of the great problems is cynicism, bitterness, and, and pessimism. And while I think there's reasons 
for those things. I also find bubbling up perhaps from my own practice, perhaps from my temperament, perhaps because I have not good angels watching over me, that there's a sense of, of possibility and buoyancy and, and humor um, that comes up in the midst of, uh, of these things. And so it's all kind of grist for the mill in, in that sense. I mean, we're all, you know, we're, we're working with the totality of human experience here. So it's got a lot of heavy stuff in it. Um, but that very working, I think, has a has a, a, a liberating and illuminating quality uh, to it that's worth um, enthusiastically uh, affirming. Yeah, grist for the mill indeed. I mean, it seems like there's a part of you on a personal level that feels that intuitively, and uh, your doorway through it is this wonderful intellectual lens too, but I can sense from you as well that there's a, an embodied somatic element of it that you... Um, as the uh, going back to the mystery itself, like there's all these things we can't we can't talk about, we can't explain. It's sort of we can talk around it all day long, uh, but there is like a, a sense of man, some kind of ineffable momentum and energy and reason for all of this, yet no reason at the same time, and like that's where the gears just stop working in our head. Well, I think it's really important to have a have a physical practice, you know, especially as someone who tends uh, intellectual and who, you know, tends to be, uh, you know, critical in the sense of of seeing the problems with a lot of things that can that can lead to a sort of, uh, you know, a kind of dark view that it's for me, it's always been really important since I was, you know, in my teens to have some kind of you know, yoga, Tai Chi, meditation, some kind of physical practice that I'm constantly engaged in mm. that balances it because there's a kind of, there's a kind of health in the body. There's a kind of sense of liveliness uh, of life, a sort of energetic um, uh, cohesion that comes about mm. through these kinds of practices. And, and I'll just, I let it be its own. It doesn't mean anything. It's not, you know, I don't think about it as like, religion or even sacred the sacred or or spiritual with a capital s it's just a, a way of practicing with flows and energies that have their own uh, messages have their own uh ways of, of of holding the self and you know i kind of feel like i'm a combination uh of these energies and practices from very physical to very intellectual uh and and trying to be uh, I don't want to say like a whole being, but be, you know, um, multidimensional. And then that ends up, you know, but they both inform each other. So I, I think it's incredibly important to be critical about one's spiritual practice. Ask, is this guru really what's going on? What am, yes. is, am I, am I, am I fooling myself here with this idea of how to interpret this at the same time as you go into it? It's like a, it's a balance. It's not like a, writing it off. Don't write it off. Just go into it, you know, explore, open up, connect, fall in love, um, become obsessive, become fantastic, you know, have mystical dreams, whatever, but also keep your, your feet on the ground. And the same thing in the, in the mind, you know, be critical, be inform yourself as much as possible, be skeptical, but also be skeptical of skepticism because now with, con you know, conspiracy <laughs> theory, you can be, you can throw doubt at everything. And, and people want you to throw doubt at everything. Oh, don't believe it's the earth is round. The scientists have fake been news. lying. Fake NASA's news, yeah. lying. Fake news, <laughs> fake news. So obviously it's not enough just to say be doubt or be doubtful or be skeptical. It's like you also have to recognize what it means to be skeptical in any given condition. So the cognitive stress of trying to 
navigate our contemporary moment is is significant. And so I don't see how you, you can do it without some kind of spiritual practice and some kind of connection with a spiritual community, with community, whether they're just spiritual friends or a organization or some current that you can identify with or a sense of teachers. And all of that is just a sort of way, it's like ballast uh, in a, in a really, uh, turbulent, um, turbulent time. So that's, that's kind of how, how I, how I feel it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm great that you bring up that idea of a personal sort of almost physical practice as the doorway in, especially when we think about the mystery having no edge and, uh, we're, you know, when we try to approach it from a standpoint of trying to find its edge, where you know, our brain is wanting to bump up against the edges or understand the room that we're in. And we're continually reminding ourselves that it's not even a room, perhaps. And That's beautiful, man. Um, thank you. Great. Uh, I love all these ideas. So if I know you've, you've been out there for a long time. You've got a podcast and you've got books and articles and essays and other interviews. I mean, how do people interface with you? Yeah, well, my 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 site for for forever it seems like is uh, technosis dot com t e c h g n o s i s and that's you know where uh, name of my first book that came out uh, again over, over twenty years ago and I've had a bunch of books since and I'm lately I've been pushing the new one uh, high weirdness drugs esoterica and visionary experience in the 70s and that's a book that's about terence mckenna robert anton wilson and philip k dick and trying to understand the kind of visionary experience and asking a lot of the questions we've been talking about in this interview about technology about skepticism uh about spirituality uh about how to think about uh, psychedelic experience so that's that's a uh, you know, a big book based on my dissertation. So it's a, it's another kind of big monster like technosis. Um, yeah. and, uh, though my podcast is on hiatus for the summer, it's called expanding mind. And I've been doing it for, um, for, a, about a decade and, uh, and it'll, it's, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen with it. It's going to recrystallize in some form or another, uh, uh, probably in the fall. But at the moment, um, there's still an enormous archive of really, I like to think of it's just unusual conversations uh, about what I call the cultures of consciousness and talk to all sorts of folks, you know, uh, scholars of religion and scientists and uh, drone metal musicians and, you know, lots of different kinds of characters, but always kind of hunting after the same sort of sweet spot uh, between uh, critique and the sacred. I love it, man. Yeah, it's a deep well. I mean, how does that feel? The two. I mean, you're you're definitely ahead of the curve on a lot of these ideas that now, like the the mainstream is is on your coattails. Is that a sense of validation, or uh, are you kind of like, uh, no, I don't want to identify with the way some of this is being commodified? Uh, both. You know, I mean, I I've I've had that experience in many times in my life of being a. Uh, a little bit ahead of the curve. I've been lucky to know people who are really tuned in. A lot of it comes about through, I think, just being lucky and um, uh, observant about friends and interlocutors. And so it's it's a it's a it's a strange feeling because in a way it's confirming, <clears throat> in a way it's um, uh, alienating. You know, to have your little world uh, be suddenly sort of dissolved into this much larger world where much bigger players with a, a lot more intense agendas, a lot less subtle agendas 
are all, you know, playing out their games. And so the kind of stuff that I do isn't necessarily even that valued, even though I've been doing it for a long time. And that's often the case for people who kind of see ahead in some ways. <clears throat> Though when it actually comes to the fore, uh, it's there's the 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 terms for the people are talking about it have changed a lot. Well, I hope you keep doing it. I enjoy it. I enjoy talking to you, and I enjoy your work and your ideas, and it's a lot of fun. Excellent. Well, it's it's been a great conversation. Thanks, man. Thank you so much, Eric, for giving us your time. Man, that guy's got a lot of wonderful words in his head and ideas, and it's like you can tell he's been thinking about this for a while. I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you, Eric. Check out his work. Check out his books. It's all a total mind trip, and it's it's awesome. He's been doing this for a long time, and he's a real leader in the field, and uh, it's, just, it's an honor to be able to get to talk to him and, and dig into it deeper. This song that you're hearing in the background is called Dark Thoughts, and it's from Ram Dass, the album that's coming out on August 9th. We look forward to sharing that with you, and thank you for doing your part to share it with your friends and help us uh, get this out there. You can join us online for the live stream on August 9th, too, at around 9 p.m. Pacific time on social media. Check out our Facebook page for that one, I believe. More information, more stuff. Also... East Force Retreats coming up this fall. If you can make it out in Utah in the fall, September 26th through 29th, please join us. Check it out. Eastforest.org. Okay, that's enough. That's enough promotion. It's time for you to just uh, sit back, listen to Loomer music, and we will catch you next week. You keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit. But when you do, or if you do, I'm going to gander when you do. Do it with grace. Remember, the witness is part of the soul, and the soul loves everything. Thank you.